Welcome to Bosses with Baggage. I'm Sherry Sutton, your host and business growth guide. Around here, we believe that failures are our superpowers. So in this podcast, we'll explore the many ways that setbacks can mold, shape, and change your life and your business and ensure that you come out of the fire better than before. Through interviews with business leaders and discussions of my own personal struggles, we'll unlock the secrets to turning setbacks and low moments into opportunities to thrive. From approaching your business with a servant's heart to getting comfortable with being the face of your brand, each episode will be a safe, judgment-free zone to reframe the concept of failure with honesty, empathy, grace, and a whole lot of laughter. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to Bosses with Baggage. We are here today with Eddie Anderson, who is a dear friend. Welcome, Eddie. How y'all doing? How you doing, Sherry? We are so thrilled to have you here today. If you have never heard Eddie's story or had the privilege to hear his story, it's pretty off the hook. And so I'm so excited to share it with you. As you know, Bosses for Baggage, our vision is to share these dark nights of the soul that we go through and how it's led us to a life of service. And Eddie is one of those people that when I thought about starting this podcast of this is the ideal type of story that I want to tell, because the more we're willing to share those stories, right? The more we can make other people feel comfortable sharing their stories and not have the shame associated with addiction or having those dark nights of the souls hitting rock bottom, right? Because for many of us, including myself, that is our real true superpower. So Eddie, I'm so excited to have you tell your story today. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with a little bit of just kind of where are you from? How did you grow up? And let's talk about kind of everything that led up to the eh, things started going off the rails at this point. So tell us what happened in your life before that. Just wanted to say, Sherry, it's an honor to be here with you. And you are one of my dearest friends. So we're covering two bases at one time. (laughs) It's fun to be able to do this with a friend. Right. So I'll just start I was born and raised here in Dallas, Texas, and my mother was an English teacher in the DISD for about 40 years. So she placed in me a understanding that education was important. She also wanted me to get into a private school here in Dallas that's pretty esteemed. And I tested to get into that school and did not make it the first time. It's called St. Mark's School of Texas. Didn't make it the first time, tested again the next year and got in on the caveat that I repeat the seventh grade. So I started St. Mark's in the seventh grade and attended it through the 12th grade, played all sports, was pretty good at sports from my childhood. And um, it was a wonderful experience. And that's kind of the foundation that I plug into as I live today is those experiences at St. Mark's. One of the things we did at St. Mark's, though, is that we had drinking parties after most of the football games. So you go from ninth grade, 10th grade year, all the way to 12th grade year. I received a scholarship to Texas Tech to play football. And by the time I arrived at Texas Tech, I was verified as a partier. Drinking was just part of the culture. And then when I look back, I see that there were issues that came up while I was in high school, but without any kind of guidance, without any kind of consequences, you don't even examine those. So I just took everything that I learned at St. Marston, took it to Texas Tech. 
Yeah. So then did you play football at Texas Tech? I did play football at Texas Tech. I had a good career, you know, got some accolades, but I found myself in trouble because of my addictions and my alcoholism. A lot of it was covered up at Tech because it was kind of the culture, but I was beyond what was acceptable. So, you know, I got myself into some trouble. I had an agent that paid me under the table to sign with him once I was drafted and none of those things worked out. Then I tested positive on a drug test along with some other things and was basically suspended for the team for my last game at Texas Tech, which at that time I needed four catches to be the all-time lead receiver in the history of the school. Wow. And for those of you who are listening who aren't from Texas, like football is life here. It is a big deal. Texas Tech is a big deal. Playing football at Texas Tech is a big deal, right? So I grew up in Connecticut. And so like football was like, like, that's the thing they do somewhere else. So for anybody who's listening, that's a really big, really big deal. So tell me a little bit about kind of your drinking. So was it drinking mostly or were you drugs as well? Or It was basically in high school, it was strictly alcohol. Never saw drugs in high school, never was around anybody that did drugs in high school. But by the time I got to tech, being around grown men and being around people from different backgrounds, I was exposed to a lot of things. And so by my second year at tech, someone had brought cocaine into my dorm room. My first reaction was, I don't want any of that. But my ability to stand on my own and not fold the peer pressure and those type of things. He was like, come on, man, just try it. Just try it. It's not bad. So I tried it. We went to the recreation center at Texas Tech and played basketball. And I played basketball like I was Michael Jordan. Couldn't stop me. I was playing against the Tech basketball team. I mean, I was between my legs. I was almost dunking. And I got back to the dorm room and said, we need some more of this. And so. (laughs) Sign me up. Yes, that started. (laughs) I mean, I was addicted from day one. Just that's the way things happen. And I won't say that I was rich in college, but I had access to more funds than some of the people around me. And I think. You know, as I look back today, that probably we were just wanting to have a good time, but I was someone who could actually afford to buy it. So I look back and and just put all these little pieces together of how I fell into addiction as tough as I did. And it started innocently enough. If there is an innocence with cocaine, it started just going and playing basketball. My husband, you know, as you know, because you guys are best friends, was also (laughs) a college athlete and then a professional athlete afterwards. And Alcohol was just given to you, right? I mean, it was just because you were an athlete, right? And you were, the team was God, right? Wherever, like, he's like, I never paid for a drink until I retired at 30. Because <laughs> you just, it just gets handed to you, right? You get to go to the, all the good parties. You get to go to all the good bars. People buy you stuff. People give you drugs, right? It's so much easier to have the access. Yes, that is true. Just being an athlete in college, you get preferential treatment in some regards and the social life, everybody wants people from the football team there or the basketball team. And so we would we would go out and Billy's um, perspective on it is right. We never we never really paid for anything. But when you're an alcoholic and an addict, you go beyond what the free the free that they're willing to provide. So I ended up spending my money just because I never stopped. I, I you know, I didn't have the boundaries. So alcohol was provided. 
there were drugs and alcohol, but I was a person that went even beyond that. So. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, is one of the definitions of someone who is in addiction, right? And particularly in alcoholism that I never really understood until I went through the process of getting over my addiction was we're the ones who, even if we say we're going to go and have two, we never do. We always miss the mark. We always, you know, close the bar. Like when everybody leaves at 10 or midnight or whatever, right? We were the ones who always stayed longer because as soon as we put it in our body, it just manifested that, you know, the allergy and we just kept going and going and going and going and going. And I think for anyone listening to this that that isn't sure if they're in trouble, that's a real clear sign that if you're always closing down the bar, if you're always at the point where you're not only completely stumbling down drunk, but then you're like, oh, I need to go get cocaine now. Right, right. You might need some help. And I, you sound like I was the same way. Like the first time I drank all the way through, I was always, I drank until I was. I can say that I rarely drank just for the taste of alcohol. I was always drinking to get to a destination and had no idea what that des- destination was, but I knew that I would get messed up along the way. And that was generally okay. So I was, you know, I never just drank just to sip and be sociable. I always drank with a purpose. And I think, you know, now that I look back, that purpose was escape. But I didn't know that then as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old. So what happened? So you fail a drug test. Do you see that as kind of the turning point as things sort of started going downhill? Or tell us, tell us what happened then. Things were going downhill long before I failed the drug test. I had insulated myself with my teammates who would do everything from take drug tests for me, provide me with urine. I mean, the coaches would tell me when I was on a drug test. So I was pretty insulated. But even none of that could stop me from just crossing the line and being self-destructive. So I ended up not playing professional football, even though I tried out for about 20 teams. And I remember specifically, I had a workout with about 20 teams. I went to Austin to visit my cousin the weekend before the workout was on like a Wednesday. I went to Austin for Friday and I didn't come back for a week and I missed the workouts. I was in Austin partying and I was just like to heck with football. I've I've played it. I loved the game, but I didn't love just being visible like that. I wanted to just crawl and go away because I felt, you know, my self-esteem was attached to the people knowing that I played football. And and so when that didn't work out, of course, my self-esteem lowered even more. And all I wanted to do was just go away and just be a regular person, uh, what I considered to be a regular person. I, I didn't want anything to do. I didn't want to continue on that track of being a public figure. That's the word I was looking for. So after football, after Texas Tech, I came back to Dallas. And so I had only snorted cocaine, had never seen crack, didn't know anything about crack, had heard about it on TV. So we're talking 1989, 1990, you know, kind of when it was an epidemic kind of. So I come back to Dallas and I have one side of my family that's good, one side that's bad. And I, of course, called the bad side (laughs) and was like, hey, I want to. You know, I want to purchase some cocaine, but I've been gone for four years and just so happened I had a BMW while I was at Tech and 
You know, so I pick my cousin up and we go to the absolute worst part of Dallas you could think of. We go to this house, which Lubbock, we didn't have houses where you could go buy drugs. It was, you know, you knew somebody who would provide and so on and so forth. So we go to this house. My cousin goes in. My cousin was a school teacher as well. We go to this house. My cousin goes in and he comes back out and he says, I got good news and bad news. They didn't have any powder. They said, come back in an hour, but they had some of these. And he showed me a bunch of rocks in his hand. And he said, you know, I got a couple. You can try some if you like. But he said, come back in an hour. So we rode around in my car for about 45 minutes. And I'm watching him smoke this substance. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that's crack. I want no parts of that. Like, you know. We talked about people who were smoking crack while we were in at in Lubbock. And I rode around for 45 minutes, Sherry, and then something in my brain said, well, cocaine is cocaine. And what's the difference if you smoke it or if you snort it? So I said, man, let me try that. And that was probably the, the worst decision I ever made in my life. 21 days later, I tried to commit suicide for the first time after three weeks I tried to commit suicide. You know, that's at the age of 24. So I'm 57 now. And, you know, snorting cocaine was one thing, but smoking cocaine was something completely different. You know, socializing, no interacting with other people, just hold up in a house or hotel room and just decaying is the way I describe it, was my experience. But it was something that my body and my brain instantly, like, this is it. This is the high that you have been looking for all your life. But at the same time, I knew that it was going to kill me. I was going to kill myself. And this started, you know, it's been 30 years now since that fateful day. And I am still attempting to live my best life. It's something I still struggle with. Wow. But there's a long 30 years in between. So tell us what happened then, because you said the first time you tried to commit suicide. So tell us more. It didn't work the first time. <laughs> Obviously, or yes. any of the time. <laughs> yes, it didn't work. So, you know, my experience at that point in my life was, you know, I had been a public figure. I had gone to this, this rich private school. I didn't feel that I was anywhere close to representing that part of my life. And one of the things I learned is that if you are on the streets of Dallas or any streets, all the time. And, and it, you can't live in both of those worlds. Right, right. So I chose to live in the dark world, as you say, in your opening. I ended up getting with a group of people who committed some crimes and I um, ended up having contact with our penal system. So basically in, in 95, you know, I, I committed some crimes and was sentenced to 20 years in uh, Texas Department of Corrections. And the thing is, I had met a nice, wonderful young lady kind of right before, you know, I just finally kind of what I say threw in the towel. And she just she happened to get pregnant as well. So I was sentenced to 20 years in prison and I had to serve 10 years before I was eligible for parole. At the same time, I had a daughter who was born a month after my sentence began. Just that whole period is almost like a blur. But one of the things that happened was my daughter was born. The lady that I met became my wife and we married Proxy. 
So we married after my sentence began, which, you know, it's hard to find someone willing to sign on for that in today. So I spent that time there. And five years into my sentence, my wife passed away from breast cancer. So that that was extremely hard to deal with. My daughter came and lived with my parents. So my parents were the primary caregivers for my daughter. And I was released in 2006. And I said, I will never touch drugs, alcohol, or come back to prison again in 2006. Somehow I feel like that's not the end of the story. I was just letting it marinate for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Let it marinate. I like the pregnant pause, though, that you gave me to like drive the story on. That was nicely done. Yeah, so you. 10 years, you would think that would be enough to say, I am done with drugs and alcohol. Let me just say that while I was at Tech, they sent me to a treatment center. They sent me to Hazleton in uh, Center City, Minnesota. So I met my counselor. When I went to the treatment center, I had a BMW. I had a beautiful girlfriend. I had a news magazine that were doing a story on Texas Tech wide receivers. All of this was waiting on me. And he said, you are going to die. You're going to be in the institution or you're going to jail. And I said, man, you are crazy. And everything he predicted came true in my life. So that's the caveat. So I get out in 2006 and I have made up my mind. I am not doing crime. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not drinking. I'm going to be a father. And I tried to set out to be the best dad that I could for my daughter. So we spent a lot of time together. My idea of parenting was take your daughter to all of your sports stuff. That worked for about a year and a half as I re-engaged with my high school buddies and I re-engaged with some of my tech buddies. But I had a little girl and Sports only goes so far with someone who is not into sports. And, you know, she was more of an introvert. And it took me a while to kind of understand what that meant. And then I had to transition to being a drill team dad or just doing girl dad stuff, which was cool. I ended up enjoying it. So I stayed clean from 2006 to 2013. I basically stayed clean, just white knuckling it. My life experience has been so bad that I don't want to repeat it. So I'm not going to use drugs and alcohol. I'm going to prove all these people wrong that what they say about me. And I just like made my mind up and said, this is how I'm going to live my life. But what I didn't do is grow as a person. Had no clue that you have to, if you want to get something out of life, you got to put something in. You have to invest in yourself. You have to learn about yourself. I never did any of that. I just did the next thing in line, what I saw my parents do, work, try to provide. But I never grew as a person. So I ended up starting my own business uh, in 2009. And I had a, a skip trace company from 2009 to 2013. I don't know if you know what skip tracing is, Sherry. No. That means you pay your bills. Got it. Skip <laughs> tracers locate collateral for banks, insurance companies, and they repossess that collateral upon investigation and return it to the banks. So I had a company that we repossess everything from motorcycles, boats, planes, cars, trailers, whatever it was collateralized, we repossessed it. So I spent my days manipulating, lying being untruthful, because at the end of the day, people very rarely will 
say, okay, Mr. Anderson, I haven't made my car payment in six months. You can come get it. That wasn't the way it went. It usually had to do with me trying to outsmart them and figure out where that car was located. So I spent four years just basically misrepresenting the truth. And my spiritual life declined to the point to where I felt pretty empty. I think one indicator was that I asked my mom to come to work for me. She had retired. I was like, mom, you'd be a great office manager. My mom said, I want no parts of that. I want no parts of that industry. My daughter had the same response. So in 2013, because I hadn't addressed any other thing in my life, I um, started going to the casino with my dad. And that went from going to the casino with my dad to going to the casino myself. Ended up losing about uh, $15,000, $20,000 over a 45-day period. And part of that was some of the money that I used to pay my employees with. So the person I was in business with said, you are gone. And I took that and it coincided with a relapse. So after six years of not using any substance, things were falling apart around me. And I said, I'm going to go get high. And I went and got high. I got drunk. And so three months from my relapse being removed as a vice president of this company, I decided I was going to commit suicide by cop. That I didn't want to return to a life of crime. I was tired of fighting my addictions. I just didn't think that I had it in me to be sober. I just thought, man, this world would be better if I wasn't here. And this wasn't the first time that I thought that, but this was the probably the realest time that I thought, I'm going to carry this out. So you said suicide by? By cop. Suicide by okay, police. What, I don't know. What does that mean? Yeah, so suicide by cop is when you decide you're going to commit suicide, but you don't have the courage to do it yourself. And you use the police department, our law enforcement officers, to carry out your super suicide. Is this a thing? If you Google suicide by cop, you will see there have been many instances where people have tried to commit suicide by policemen. Yes. Okay, so you make that decision. And then how does that work? I guess you have to put yourself in a situation where a police officer would shoot at you. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. That is correct. So remember when we talked about you could go into certain parts of town and they just see you as, you know, the next drug addict. Police can sometimes have that same attitude. So I knew that if I was in South Dallas and acting crazy or did something stupid, they would call the police. Police would get there. It would be over for me. So I walked into a liquor store. I got a orange sun kiss. I took it to the counter and I told the person I was not paying for it. And I had a knife in my possession. There was a security guard in the liquor store and they called the security guard over. And I told him the same thing. He called Dallas police. It took about 10 minutes for Dallas police to get there. And I was waiting outside with the security guard. And it was just going through my mind. This is my last day on this earth. And I had one thought where I was like, man, if I could just talk to my mom right now, I might not do this. And so I asked that security guard if he would call my mother. And that security guard told me no. So once he said no, then I was like, okay, we're doing it. So the police arrived. They started barking commands. They tasered me in my chest. I took the taser out, threw it on the ground. I ran around the corner in front of this building. They cornered me off, and I did have a knife in my possession. And 
I remember them specifically saying, if you take a step, we will shoot you. And I just said, you know, Lord, here I come. And I took a step and they shot me twice, shot me in my hand and shot me in my stomach. So, you know, that's my dark day of the soul that night when I decided that I was done on this earth and I really was seriously done on this earth. Like, I mean, I could have jumped off a bridge or stepped in front of a car, but I thought this, I mean, surely this will be it. But the police actually ran and gave me life saving measures. They, they didn't just shoot me. They also gave me life saving measures and the ambulance got there. I was on life support for a short period of time and I survived. I survived. So that started a whole another chain of life events. But that's my darkest moment. That's the darkest moment of my soul that night, June 27, 2013. So we are coming up on 10 years since that happened. So it's appropriate that I get to share this with you today. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad you're here. I mean, it really is a suicide attempt, right? I mean, you know, you hear other people do it maybe by other means, but so I have to imagine that the next step where there were some ramifications from that, right? They don't just say, you know. They did not say that, oh yeah, this was a mental health. Oh, we're so sorry you wanted to commit suicide. (laughs) Go ahead. We'll get you a little therapy and everything's going to be better. (laughs) Yes. They they say that now though, because, you know, we're not a threat anymore. But so I was in the hospital for 50 straight days. I lost 50 pounds. I was chained to a bed because when you're in the hospital and you're in custody for Dallas County, they have an officer in there with you and you don't just get to run around the room. They have you chained down. But I survived. And so I, I tell this when I talk to different groups, but I said, God had something else for me to do in this world. But the judge said, you're going to go do five years. (laughs) So the DA, the judge, everybody came together and it was agreed that I should get the minimum amount of time that I could get for what I did. But because of my previous record, they had to send me to prison. So there wasn't a probation or anything on the table because of my previous record. So I went down to TDC again in 2013 and I did the whole five years and got out in 2018. So I am going on being out six years and two things happened while I was there. So I knew that I had to address my drug and alcohol. And I said a prayer to God, God, if you just bring me back to society, to my family one more time, I will proclaim that you are real and I will try to be of service. And we have no idea what that looks like. Like I had no idea what I will be of service really meant. I could have just been of service to myself or to the people in my family. Like I didn't know, I didn't have any idea what being of service was. I took a course while I was there called Bridges to Life, which brought victims of crime into the prison system. And we had small groups and it helps people who have been victimized see inmates as people. And it helps the inmates see the people that they victimize as human beings. And it kind of breaks that cycle of, you know, just seeing that people as victims. And it helps helps with uh, people who've been victimized, helps them with forgiveness. So I took that class and I was so touched by that class that I was, you know, it just kind of fortified. Man, God did not put me on this earth to victimize people. Even if I'm in my own way, I don't have any right to 
make somebody a victim. And in that class, the person who was over the class from Bridges to Life asked me, well, Eddie, what do you think about the officers that you victimized? And I thought, what part of I got shot do you not understand? Because <laughs> you didn't hear that I got shot. <laughs> but there was some I got truth. the scars. Yes, I have the scars. I'm the one that got shot. What do you mean I victimized the officers? But there was there was so much truth in that question that I really started thinking about. You know, those officers did not wake up that day thinking they were going to have to shoot somebody. And, you know, when an officer shoots somebody, they go on death leave, um, you know, maybe it traumatize them. I didn't even give any of that any thought. And so I started working on changing my attitude towards law enforcement. And then I realized that they actually saved my life because they could have just shot me and let me bleed out. But they I remember the female officer coming and pressing my stomach and just saying, hold on, hold on. Ambulance is coming. So I started just to think. You know, my story is a little different because the, even though the police shot me, they helped me. It just kind of changed the whole narrative that you hear, especially with black men, police shootings, all of that stuff. It just changed the whole narrative. So when I was released in 2018, I had a whole different attitude. And God has a, a funny, funny sense of humor. But I sold cars when I got out in 2018. And one of my first customers was the chief of police of uh, Addison. So I'm on a monitor, Sherry. You know, I'm just trying to make it. And I go on a test drive with the police chief. And so while we're in the car, I ask him, what's your opinion on people who commit suicide by cop? And he strongly said, I think people who commit suicide by cop are cowards. And I was thinking, well, this won't be a, a sale because he knows I'm not asking for a friend. I'm asking, you know, for myself. But we did do the deal. But I I just remembered that moment that, you know, a lot of things come full circle when you're trying to find your way. So one thing I recommitted to was my sobriety. And, you know, we we can commit to it, but you still got to put some work into it. And so a lot of things have happened since then. You know, my body was in terrible shape. So I've had to have three surgeries since I've been out. I got a mesh put in my stomach. I had two hip replacements over the past five years and was in so much pain because TDC didn't. They just said, you can breathe. Okay, then you're okay. Everything else is cosmetic. So I needed these procedures, but TDC wouldn't do them. So I had to come back home to get those procedures. But things have changed. And I just attribute to being sober. And I attribute to, you know, just God has a plan for me in my life. And one of the the coolest unfoldings of the plan is sort of this new job you've taken. So it hasn't been all that long, but I remember you like coming to us, you're like, you won't even believe, like I have goosebumps just mentioned, like talking about it. Like you won't even believe what just landed in my lap. Like how does this, those things don't happen unless they're like divinely ordained. And so tell us about the job that you're doing now. Right. So, you know, you met me when I pretty much had nothing. I was borrowing a truck from my mother. I was working at Ranger Stadium for minimum wage. I was living in a sober house. And this was 15, 16 months ago. Which, like, let's take a second. 16 months ago is not that long ago. 
let's just take a moment on that, right? Like sometimes, I mean, I know we've been talking like all the way back into college and stuff, but this is watching this happen in your life has been so incredible because it really has happened very fast. And it happened like when you got sober, you started doing the work and you really committed to that life, right? It just, zhoosh. So when I got through my hip surgeries and I was like, I need to make a complete and total decision to not have any substances in my body. I worked at Ranger Stadium for minimum wage, stayed in a sober living house, was just barely making it, but I was sober and I was working the steps. First break I got was I applied, you know, my my background is challenging because on paper I look good until you do a background check and then you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> yes. But I can say vice president. I Never can mind. <laughs> yes. I, I cannot tell you how many offers I got to come to work and then how many letters I got subsequently to say we're rescinding our offer. But you have to you have to keep going. The right door is going to open. So I went from working at Ranger Stadium to I got hired by a company called Chime Solutions. And they are a second chance employer. And my crime, you know, I had was over five years old. So I passed the background screen, went to work for them within three months, was promoted to manager, which as an addict and an alcoholic, I would say some of the most talented people I've ever met in my life are addicts and alcoholics and people who have the greatest work ethic, people who have the biggest heart. So my work ethic was never in question. It was just, was somebody going to give me an opportunity? So they gave me the opportunity. And this whole time I kept in touch with that prison ministry called Bridges to Life. And they asked me to come tell my story in Austin back in October at a little small country club setting. And, you know, I told my story and then they said, we want you to come to Arlington and talk to our a regional fundraiser. And that was in November. And I did that in November. And at that fundraiser was the owner of my company. Her name is Tony Brinker. She was married to Norm Brinker of Brinker International. She has a nonprofit called One Community USA. And so after I spoke, she approached me and said, I want to talk to you. So we set up a phone call and you know, she told me that she worked with vets and law enforcement and first responders. And she works with guys who are being released from prison. And she was considering me for a associate manager position with her company. And we interviewed for about 30 days because, you know, at that time, I probably had um, eight or nine months of hard sobriety, living life right. And she wanted to make sure that her investment in me would not come with it would not tear her company apart or I would, um, my life. She just wanted to vet me. So we did that. And on January 23rd, I started here. And so I get to work in the office with me. I'm the only civilian in this office. I have three co-workers on Chop Talk side, which is where law enforcement goes in the barbershops and salons. And we have workshops and we have events to build community relations. And then in my department, I have a director who was ex-military and then I have a a uh, coworker who is ex-military. I am the only civilian in this office. And I spend my days going into the same prison that I was incarcerated on. And I teach a 40-hour class to those guys, pre-vocational, uh, restorative justice. I bring people from the community who have been incarcerated and who have not been incarcerated into the facility to talk to these guys about different 
avenues, different mindsets, just different ways that they can change their life. And then I use myself as the example. If Look, I tell them there is no greater dope fiend than Eddie Anderson. And if Eddie Anderson can stop using and stay sober and change his life, you can change your life. That's my pitch. That's my pitch to him. So now these guys are, you know, we work with them on the outside when they get out as well. So I spend my day, my whole day is spent in service, being in service to these guys. But I get more, I get just as much as what they they get out of it. Because every day you have to fortify your life in some form or fashion, or you go backwards is the way I look at it. I didn't have that internal healing to have some peace. And life still isn't perfect, man. My finances in disarray. My social life could use an upgrade. <laughs> but but I have no complaints about where this journey has taken me. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. You are an inspiration. And again, like your journey is just exactly what I wanted to talk about here is this, this idea of, you know, we have redemption that our, you know, your greatest struggle of being where you were is the only reason why you can be of service to the level that you're able to be of service today, right? You get to be a role model that I could never walk in and be a role model to them in that same way because I haven't been there, right? I haven't gone through it. I haven't slept in the same cell that they have, right? And I just think there's something so powerful when we get to go back and help the people who are struggling with the exact same thing we were or were, are in the exact same place that we were, that is just so magical. And I just, you know, we need to tell more of those stories. And so I appreciate you so much for sharing your story here with us today. Mwah, you are one of my favorite people and I appreciate you so much. Thanks again. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. And um, I just, you know, want to say that I wish you the best with this endeavor. I know you're going to knock it out of the park. You have everything that you need to continue to rise and shine. So I'm just glad that I'll be around to see, see you shoot up like a shining star. And you will be at my house every day when football season starts. I know. Can't I know. wait till There's July. Lots of Eddie in my house <laughs> yes. as soon as football season the starts. The man cave will be back. Thank you. Thank y'all. Thank you for listening to Bosses with Baggage. We are honored that you chose to spend your precious time with us. I hope that you are feeling inspired to reframe your setbacks into your superpowers so that you can change not only your life, but the life of everyone around you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, and I sure hope you did, please subscribe, rate, and share on your favorite podcast listener. And if you have any ideas for a future guest or you need some help growing your business, I'd love to connect with you. You can find me directly on my website, which is SherrySutton.com, S-H-E-R-R-Y-S-U-T-T-O-N.com. We'll see you next time.